0: Good and good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, it is such a privilege to call you our Father. We thank you so much for Jesus, and we ask that your Spirit will join us as we study your word, that we can be transformed and empowered to carry this final message of mercy to the world, that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number six in our quarterly. And our quarterly is God's Mission, My Mission, and the title is Motivation and Preparation for Mission. And what is to be our motivation? Love. Of course, of course, love. Yes, I mean, that's a kind of rhetorical question. But can people have a godly motivation, uh, be reborn, have love in their heart, but still not be ready for mission? Yes.
1: Mm -hmm. I think
0: so. Can people actually start mission without proper preparation but with good intention because they have love in their heart but without the proper preparation, things don't go well.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Can you think of any Bible examples of people who were great missionaries, people who did great missions for God but they actually had to have a lot of preparation before they could do their mission? Saul. Okay, Saul who became Paul. And after he became Paul, it says he went out uh, to Arabia to commune with Jesus for a period of time before he was ready to do his mission. So that's a good example. Others? Jesus, I guess.
1: Moses. Moses.
0: Moses. Moses. Yeah, He started his own mission at age 40 when he murdered the overseer. But then he had to go for 40 years of preparation before he's actually ready at age 80 to start his mission. So Moses, I think, is a good example. Others? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus had to be, he had preparation uh, and, and certainly had to study and prepare, and he took time away from the masses to stay connected to his father.
1: John Mark.
0: Yes, the, the apostles, yeah. Mhm. And how about Elisha? Did Elisha have a mentor? Yes.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So I think we have a good case that that, uh, being converted and then spending some time to prepare for mission is very reasonable. First two paragraphs in the lesson say, Paul wrote to the Philippians, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Powerful words, whether in pretense For in truth, Christ is preached. And that is what mattered to Paul. Ideally, though, our motives for preaching Christ, for mission, for reaching others with the good news, should be out of love and out of truth and not from selfish ambition, envy, or strife. What do you think about that? What do you think about the, the, the process of Paul's response? Paul was made aware that people were preaching out of pretense, out of envy, out of strife. What did Paul do? Did, well, first off, does it, because Paul did not chastise that or try to stop that, does that mean Paul took no issue or had no concerns with false doctrines?
2: No.
0: No. no, he took issue with false doctrines all the time in many different ways. So, but he doesn't take a stance against false preachers preaching out of false motives. He takes an issue with false doctrines, lies, misrepresentations, things that would put burdens on Christians they don't deserve. Legalistic Christianity he takes he takes issues with false doctrines, but he doesn't try to stop. Preachers preaching from false motives. Oh, have you ever heard that all publicity is good publicity? (laughs) (laughs) Especially where the idea, concept, or person being introduced is unknown to the population. In Paul's day, Jesus was a complete unknown to the vast majority of everyone in the world. And so Paul's concern was get the word out about Jesus, have more people hear about Jesus, have more people uh, hear, and then, then they have the opportunity to investigate for themselves and, and make up their own decision about whether they love Jesus or don't love Jesus. But the, the first priority for Paul was to get the word of Jesus out there. And so I think that was a big issue for him. But he also practices a principle. When he refuses to silence preaching from selfish ambition, what principle is he practicing?
2: Not judging. The law of liberty.
0: The law of liberty. Certainly, he wasn't judging. On the one hand, he wasn't judging publicly. I suspect in his heart he was making a judgment that they were doing this out of selfish ambition. But he wasn't condemning them publicly, but he was practicing the law of liberty, freedom. Freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, freedom of self-determination. But promoting the principle of liberty is not the same thing as agreeing with falsehood Mm -hmm. or letting falsehoods go unchallenged. They're not the same thing, are they? So you will notice that those who love the truth do not seek to censor or silence those who are wrong. Mm. Those who are presenting lies. We don't seek to silence them. We simply counter the lies with the truth. We present the truth. The truth ends up speaking for itself. And the truth ultimately for those who have the willingness to investigate the evidence, the truth ultimately wins and destroys the lies. But those who are advancing falsehood must silence the sources of truth because the truth will destroy their position in power. Mm-hmm. This, this idea, understand then, when you see the action of censoring, of silencing, of restricting liberties of conscience, of restricting freedom of worship and freedom of speech and freedom of peaceful assembly and bodily autonomy, when you see those activities ongoing, it's always a sign of evil. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Evil being practiced. And it's what Jesus meant when he said, by their fruits you will know them. By the methods they practice, not by the words they declare. In fact, the truly evil will frequently espouse words that you can agree with. But then they begin to implement or practice methods that are evil to advance the words or the so-called agenda that you might agree with. You follow me? It will be under the claim of seeking some good, seeking to stomp out evil, to to protect, to save in some way. The forces of evil always oppose the methods of God, which means they will always oppose the truth. But they won't do it by saying, we're here to oppose the truth. That's not how they'll do it. No. They'll do it by saying they're here to screen out misinformation, to censor disinformation. They're here to protect you from ideas that could harm you. They only want what's best. They're here to help. This is what they'll say. But the lovers of truth don't use such methods. They're open and invite honest investigation and questioning. So let's, look, let's review fairly quickly some of the ways that evil forces seek to silence the truth. Any ideas? Yeah. By direct destruction of the speakers of truth. Let's kill them. Think about all the martyrs who died. Stephen, why did they actually stone Stephen? Speaking. What did he just finish doing? Speaking the truth. Speaking the truth, and they did not want to hear it, so they had to silence him. By imprisonment, consider all the truth speakers through the years that have been sent to concentration camps or gulags or city jails. Uh, when, when people are doing evil and somebody speaks the truth, you've got to silence them. How about devaluing the messenger? Matthew 13:55. Isn't this the carpenter's son? How does this man have such learning when he's never been taught? Who is Dr. Jennings to teach us any theology? He doesn't have a degree in theology. How can he possibly know anything? Devalue the speaker. Find something that you can criticize about their credentials or their background and make them appear less capable. That's one way. How about name calling and character assassination? attacking the messenger when you actually have no truth to attack the message. Matthew 12, 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they say, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons, or John eight forty eight. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan, demon-possessed? Character assassination, name-calling. How about accusing the speakers of truth? of doing the evil that they are doing. Matthew 26, 65. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need to hear any more witness? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? (laughs) They're accusing Jesus of blasphemy. Who's blaspheming? You will see this all the time. The evil people will accuse the, the speakers of truth of doing the very evil that they're doing. Yet, yeah, Russell?
2: There's another method that has come about since then, and it's passing laws that make it illegal to discuss certain subjects.
0: So that would be the censoring or the, the using of imperial law to, to silence again, to stop it. Yeah. And maybe even using government agencies to screen what's being presented on YouTube or, or, or not even government agencies officially, but using the back channels to get powerful corporations to start censoring and, and limiting. Yeah. Of course, in communist countries, that's what they do. If you speak against the government, that's illegal and you go to prison. How about... Twisting words and perjury, Matthew 26, 60. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Lying and twisting words. How about appealing to expert opinion rather than the truth in order to intimidate? This is uh, John 7, 45 to 49. This is... Uh, the temple guards coming back after they were told to arrest Jesus. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees uh, who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. Now notice the intimidation here. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted, has any of the rulers or the Pharisees, in other words, us people with theological degrees who sit in offices of authority over the church, have any of us... Believed in him, no. But this mob, who's ignorant, who knows nothing about the scripture and the law, there's a curse on them. Notice the method here: our authority, our position, and we den- and we criticize you plebes out there who can't do any real thinking, who are uneducated. Intimidation through uh, expert opinions. Have we had any expert opinions over the last few years spouting out different things that have actually no basis in reality and whole societies are being intimidated to believe because the person in authority says so? Watch these methods, man. They are so evil. Intimidation via sanctions and restrictions of liberty. John nine twenty-two. This is the parents of the blind man. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue, or John seven thirteen, No one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Let's use our office. Let's use the authority we have. Let's restrict freedom. Let's not let people come and worship. Let's disfellowship. Let's. Have we seen methods like this used? How about this one? Rejection and mob violence, Luke 4, 28 to 30. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him, Jesus, out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Or shouting down voices, shouting down voices of truth, to silence and to intimidate and to incite riots. Have you ever seen somebody that was going to go somewhere, maybe to a college campus and speak some truth? And they wouldn't even allow it. They started chanting and rioting. Well, notice this in Acts chapter 19, starting verse 28. When they heard this, they were furious, began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. And down at the last verse there. Uh, They all shouted in unison for about two hours, chanting, Great is Artemis of Ephesians! Great is Artemis of Ephesians! In other words, have you seen on college campuses and other places that in order to silence the voice of truth, we'll just chant and riot and prevent people from hearing the words of truth? Or refusing to listen and murdering the voices of truth act seven fifty-seven. and notice this is when stephen was preaching notice what they did and at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voice no,
1: no, no, no,
2: no, no, no. <laughs> they
0: they all rushed him dragged him out of the city and began to stone him isn't that sad Now, I I point this out from Scripture. You see, all these these evil methods, have they gone away? No. No. It's worse. We are in the same battle that they were in back then when Jesus, the source of all truth, and every single one of these methods were used against him and the apostles, and they're used against the speakers of truth today. The righteous don't use these methods. Sunday's lesson... The lesson points us to the, woman, to the women who went to Christ's tomb Sunday morning and found it empty and met the two angels who told them Jesus had risen from the dead. How they immediately ran back to tell the disciples, but the disciples did not believe them. And then the second paragraph, we read the following. Can you imagine how the women must have felt? They had just had an amazing experience. Talk to angels. One that certainly filled them with awe. But the disciples called their experience idle tales and would not believe them. Thus, not sure whether to believe the women or not, Peter ran to the tomb to see for himself. Have you ever had the experience of sharing truth with others, including church leaders, only to have them reject the message, and belittle you, telling you that you were bearing idle tales or some falsehood, or maybe you've been duped by a particular strong personality, figure, or teacher?
1: Yes, yes.
0: (laughs) Well, what do you do? What do you do when you're advancing a truth that's changed your life, like these people who encountered the angels, and you go to the church leaders to share the joy that you know, and you're met with hostility, incredulity, disbelief, and rejection. Mm -hmm. What do you do? How do you handle it? Shake the dust off your feet. (laughs) Meaning? What do we do? Don't let it, the dust meaning don't let it hurt your feelings?
1: Walk away. You leave them free. Mm -hmm. You tell them the truth, but you leave them free to make their own choices But I was going to say earlier that I know of a minister who was told that if he was seen coming to this Sabbath school class online or whatever, if he was seen coming here, he would be fired. Mm. That's the saddest thing I've
2: ever heard.
0: And what kind of methods are those?
2: Satanic.
0: (laughs) Okay. All right. No, you're exactly right, because they're methods of authoritarianism. They are papal, actually. It's the rule over, use exertion and coercion and authority rather than, hey, it's okay because the truth has nothing to hide and if you want to go there uh, and and the truth will only be advanced because we're all on the same journey. But no, the the systems that use the imperial law model will always use authority to coerce and control. Mm -hmm. So what have you found to be helpful when dealing with such rejections? rejections of the church that maybe you grew up in, rejections of your own pastor or or elder or board. We get emails from all over the world that people that take this message into their local community, some, some friends might enjoy it, but often people in positions of authority in the system turn hostile and reject it. It helps you be introspective and root those own actions out of your life when you see them in others, because those were definitely parts of my actions before. But when, when I see it in others, it helps me be more careful with my words towards others.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, good. So you, by contrast, you say, oh, I, I never if I've ever done that in the past, I don't want to do that now. If somebody comes up with something I think is wrong, I, I don't have to belittle them. I can just have a conversation and, and say I, that, that doesn't comport with the evidence as I understand it. So coping, though, it can hurt. So first, I think the shake dust off your feet was a good comment. I understand that to mean don't take it personal. Remember what Jesus said, Luke 10, 16. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects, me, rejects him who sent me. And then in John 15, 18 through 20, if the world hates you, just remember that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, then the world... Would love you as its own. Mm -hmm. But I chose you from this world and you do not belong to it. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you slaves are not greater than their master. If people persecuted me, they will persecute you too. If they obeyed my teaching, they would obey yours too. Mm -hmm. So when we find church leaders, even or others rejecting the truth, don't take it personal. It is not us they are rejecting. It is the truth that Jesus brought they are rejecting, and ultimately they're rejecting him, for the truth is an expression of his character. And those who reject it are telling you they prefer a God that functions like the prince of this world, power over compelling power, conver- co- co- coercion, inflicted punishments. And most of the ones who reject this, when you get down to it, it always comes back to they're looking forward to a God who will punish their enemies. Mm-hmm. This is what they're looking forward to. Does this mean, though, that all initial presentations of truth will be accepted? No. Or all initial rejections of truth are only from the enemies of God? No. Look at our story. The disciples mocked the women, said they belittled them, they rejected the truth as their initial reaction. But then the Holy Spirit convicted them. They went out and investigated. Peter ran to the tomb. Jesus actually showed up in person, brought them more evidence, and eventually their initial rejection was turned to acceptance. So sometimes as you are initially rejected, you're the first seed planter. You're planting the first seeds in their heart of something they've never considered before. And now the Holy Spirit will work in other avenues through other sources to bring the truth and water it. And oftentimes, some people who initially reject will come to accept. So don't get too discouraged in the initial rejection. And they may never accept it from you. They may accept it from somebody else who brings it. Yeah. But you might have been the source to drop that seed into their heart and mind to start with. Yeah. Other ways we handle? Pray. Pray for wisdom from God who... on who, on. who with whom to share the truth? And then with, from the Holy Spirit, on what's the most effective way to do it? But here's a good one. Share your personal experience. How the truth has impacted your life. How it has resulted in your having a closer walk with God. Feeling um uh, your experience with him has deepened, how you, it, this truth has resulted in transformation of your character, victory over uh, some maybe habit you've struggled with or re- resolution of guilt and shame. It's really hard to argue with someone's experience, especially if that experience results in greater fruits of the spirit that you're living. Amen.
1: Um, sure. Tim, That's that's actually the reason I started coming 15 years ago was somebody who was in this class told me, a friend of mine said, you know, when I go to that class, it makes me feel like living a pure life. I know. And I thought, well, that's not a compliment you hear very often. It's usually they're a good speaker, blah, blah, blah. But to make you feel like living a pure life, that intrigued me. So then I had to listen, you know. <laughs>
0: and and it, it really is. This perspective about God and his design laws, it just really takes, takes all that fear away. That, that drives us so long, uh, along in many of the other ways. So get to know the person. If you want to share the truth, build a relationship. Um, if, if people actually know you and have a relationship with you and know that your heart is for the Lord, they'll be more willing to, to give your, your perspectives a fair shake. It doesn't mean they'll always agree, but they'll probably be more friendly to listen. Mm-hmm. And then leave people free. That's right. Present the truth yes. under the umbrella of liberty. Let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. That means if people don't disagree with us, I mean, don't agree with us. If they disagree with us, that we still love them and we value them as human beings, um, and we don't seek to to actually chastise or uh, stone them with our metaphorical stones. Mm-hmm. And then be discerning. Discern the attitudes, mindsets, motivations. After prayerful consideration, you conclude that that the various individuals are close, not only close to truth but hostile to the truth, enemies of the truth, then leave them be and don't, as Jesus said, don't give dogs what is sacred. Mm -hmm. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces, Matthew 7, 6. And so there are some individuals out there that will will use what what you say against you for the purpose of causing harm. And if your Holy Spirit leads you to say, this is not the time, then you don't. You just stay silent. And you see Jesus modeling that in various places where he would not actually, when they asked him questions, he just remained silent Mm -hmm. because he knew those questions were not coming from sincerity, but were coming as an attempt to get him to say something like a twist to cause harm. The last paragraph says... Of course we need a personal experience with god ourselves before we can share it with others our desire to share with others what we love so much must be a crucial part of our motivation for mission in the end we can't share what we ourselves don't have can we so if one doesn't have a personal experience with god but is actively sharing their faith what are they sharing
1: just knowledge i mean jesus. under under you know what they understand they share
0: I, I, do you think that ever happens or i just made that up as a hypothetical <laughs> are are there people actively sharing something but they don't act, have their own personal relation with god is that is that uh,
1: happen yes. well even jesus said to the pharisees you travel over all over the world trying to find a convert and when you do you make him twice the son of hell that you are yourself. I mean, that's a, a pretty bad concept.
0: Good example. That's exactly right. And so if they're not sharing a, the truth of their own knowledge and experience of God, then they're sharing whatever they have found that they find comfort in or whatever gives them a sense of security or safety or meaning or purpose in life. That's what they'll share. And it may not be God. And those religious leaders that... That uh, Linda just referenced are a good example of that. They shared their what they knew and they didn't know God. They knew law. They knew rules. They knew elitism. They, they knew their genetic history. They knew the, the, the scriptures, but they didn't know God. And they had security in their beliefs and in their rituals, and in their knowledge of the Bible, and they were confident that they had the right list of 28 fundamental beliefs that they could prove with the scripture text. And knowing those right beliefs gave them security. Yeah. And they could argue the law against somebody else and put the other person wrong, and that made them feel secure because they knew this, and, and we knew that they are wrong. Mm-hmm. But they didn't know God. So what kinds of things become replacements or proxies for a saving relationship with God.
2: What is put forward as truth or right just right in itself, a cookbook of rules.
0: Oh, there you go. So a a system of rules that are are even even if they're the right rules, but the rule the rule keeping. So this would be faith under the guise of of religion faith in law keeping sabbath keeping performance legalism of some sort the rule keeping makes you feel safe
2: you might also call it their narrative what what okay. we today refer to as narratives within the mainstream media and that sort of thing and that could be a faith in a false god a false system of
0: understanding reality a false worldview worshiping. You know, exercising faith is worshiping, and we may have faith in the scientific method. We may have faith in the narrative. We may have faith in the system. We may have faith in the government. We may have faith in in, in lots of things. You can place your faith in lots of things, but if it's not in God, it's all idolatry of some sort. What about faith in religious leaders? Whether a priest, pope, pastor, cleric, rabbi, or other, we have faith in them, and we do what they tell us. Mm -hmm. How about faith in denominational affiliation? Mm -hmm. We feel secure being a member of the remnant church. Mm -hmm. Like the Jews 2,000 years ago who had faith in being a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in John 8, Jesus confronted them when they claimed their security as Abraham as their father. And he said, no, you're of your father, the devil. But they had faith.
1: And he said, I could turn these stones into children of Abraham.
0: (laughs) Faith in sacraments or rituals or ceremonies. Faith in a legal adjustment by an intercessor in heaven who pleads your case. Mm-hmm. So all of these proxies have actually a place. For instance, worship. We are to worship, but we're to worship the true God, not all those false narratives. We are to obey God's law, but but not as a law-keeping means to salvation, but having been reconciled to God, we love him and understand his methods, and we live in harmony with his law as a fruit or an outworking of a transformed life because we actually agree with him and it makes sense and we want to be healthy. We respect, but do not place our faith in religious leaders. We place our faith in God. That's why we respect God's workmen. We do not surrender our thinking to them for them to tell us what's right and wrong. We think for ourselves. We become a part of a body of believers, whether denominational or non-denominational, in order to organize ourselves and pull our resources and share our various gifts to more efficiently spread the gospel, but our security is not found in the organization. Our security is found in Jesus. Yes? And we practice certain ceremonies or rituals because they help us in our development, solidifying in our... Our, our commitments such as baptism or child dedication or weddings or communion. But we don't place our faith in the ceremony. We carry out the ceremony as a public testimony to our faith in Jesus and our desire to live out his principles. Monday's lesson asks us to read Luke twenty-four thirty-six to 49. And it says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and he said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they, they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do you da- why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe, believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that has that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem." You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with the power from on high. Why didn't the disciples believe him at first?
2: Too far out of the ordinary.
0: Okay. So it was so far out of the ordinary, their first reaction was? Denial. (laughs) Fear.
2: Fear, yeah.
0: They were afraid. How many times when an angel shows up to one of the Bible prophets, their first reaction is what? Fear. 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 This shows us the infection of the carnal nature, folks. We all are born in sin, conceived iniquity. As soon as Adam is sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Our gut, our reflex, carnal reaction is startled. Fear. Which makes us turn selfish. And this is why over and over again when an angel shows up, the first thing they say is, fear not. Mm-mm. Don't be afraid. Calm down. Chill. <laughs> That's what they say. And the first thing they do is, is fear. This is that gut reaction that we have, startled, afraid, neurobio, And then when you're afraid and your amygdala fires, it actually freezes prefrontal cortex for a moment, and it's hard to think. It's hard to process. You're kind of like a deer in the headlights for a minute. So it takes a minute for things to calm down before you can actually start assimilating and processing information. So they're initially startled by Christ, fear reaction, Christ is gracious, hey, don't be afraid. And then they still don't believe because of another reason. It says it in the text, joy. It's too good to be true. It can't be real. They started to believe, but this was all they hoped for. This is all they dreamed for. This is all they wished for. It really can't be true, really, could it? So what did Jesus do to help them over their fear and over their joy, uh, their doubts? What did he do to get them over their doubts?
1: Give them proof. dose of reality. Evidence. Experience. Yes, yes,
0: yes, all of you. And notice what he did, the integrative evidence-based approach. <laughs> he gave them experience. He, t- he leaned on their experience, touch me. Experience for yourself that I am here in the flesh. Touch me. And then he gave scientific evidence the laws of nature in operation, give me some food, I will eat it and swallow it. You can observe this, it's measurable. And then he took them to the scriptures, documenting how all the scriptures confirm that these things would happen. And so he integrated, and all three threads agreed, Jesus was risen from the dead. Integrative evidence-based approach. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Yeah.
1: cool.
0: In the fourth paragraph it says here too we find a powerful motivation for witness for mission the word of God. Jesus knew that to solidify the disciples experience they needed to understand why he had to die and what his resurrection signified. They needed their worldview to be shifted from a a political and earthly kingdom to the great solution to sin and the victory of Christ over death. The gospel was much was so much more than achieving political sovereignty for Israel. It revealed Christ's victory over Satan and guaranteed that one day all wickedness in the world would be destroyed, that the earth would be created anew, and that God would be among his people. He opened their understanding so they could comprehend these truths and they were to share, which they were to share to the world. So the lesson points out that the disciples, kind of what Ken said a minute ago, needed a shift in their worldview. They needed to realize that Jesus did not come to establish an earthly kingdom Mm -hmm. because earthly kingdoms are built on the imposed law, rule over, force, domination, control methodology. He did not come to use might and power, coercion, forts, threats, punishment, physical war to overthrow the earthly enemies of Israel and establish an earthly kingdom that functions just like all the other earthly kingdoms. He didn't do that. He came to eradicate the root of all conflict, war, division, hostility, fighting, abuse, exploitation injustice and establish a kingdom of truth love and righteousness which is based on freedom Amen. and that requires to establish a kingdom like that requires what the eradication of fear and selfishness the sinfulness out of the hearts of every person who's a part of that kingdom That's what it requires. You have to get the infection of fear and self-centeredness out of the hearts of people in order to have a kingdom that functions as God designed it. So his disciples had to have a shift in understanding, their worldview. They might have believed rightly that Israel was called by God for mission, but they believed wrongly that the mission was to establish an earthly kingdom that ruled by the same sinful and evil methods of all the other nations. So notice a truth. Israel was called by God for mission, truth, lie, to establish an earthly kingdom using the same methods of all the other kingdoms of the earth. What about Christianity? Did Jesus, after his resurrection, call his followers to advance his kingdom on earth? Yes, and did Christianity fall into the same trap as the Jewish nation, thinking that to advance the kingdom of heaven on earth meant advancing it by using the methods of the kingdoms of the earth? Mm-hmm. Did the church go on to the wars, the crusades, use imposed law, coercive force, intimidation, inquisition, burning at the stake, deceptions, and all kinds of other evil to advance the so-called gospel? Mm-hmm. Why? How could cr- people who claim they're Christian, how could the church use such methods? How could that happen?
1: Their hearts aren't changed.
2: <laughs> and they never got away Their hearts, from that paradigm. They
0: didn't know God. They They didn't know. All those are true. Hearts not changed. Didn't know God. Absolutely. But what happened to the institution of the church? Well, how could they think it was right? How could they think it was Christian to do it?
2: You know what's happening in Canada over the last year or so uh, with the churches being burned and and, uh, all sorts of um, violence toward religious um, buildings and and people is that the indigenous people that were there were forced to accept Christianity in very coercive and and unpleasant ways and, and in, in abusive ways, mm-hmm. and now with the, with the prompting of, of uh, Neo-Marxism or whatever it is, they're, they're using it as an excuse to take revenge on the church.
1: A yeah.
2: couple of questions.
0: What Ken just described as history, where indigenous people were coerced, forced, pressured by law, by government, by intimidation no. to, as Ken said, become Christian, were they, were they actually becoming Christian? No. no. And, and and with the group doing that, advancing the kingdom of Jesus Christ? No. No, this is false Christianity, uh, and, and this is what the devil... He makes capital on, get people to take the name of Jesus and then go out and act like the devil mm-hmm. so that Jesus gets you know, paintbrushed with all the attributes of the evil one and that anybody with a sensitive contra- conscience looks at that coercive, abusive, so-called Jesus and says, well, if that's what Christianity is, I don't wanna have anything to do with it. Yeah, it's
1: true.
0: And this is a classic strategy uh, that the devil is used. So how did the church get this way? Because they accepted the lie that God's law functions like human law. And once you accept that lie, justice requires punishment. And the whole system, God has to do it. And if we're going to be God, then we have to, God-like, we have to punish law-breaking. What about today? Are Christians today vulnerable to be drawn into sinful, worldly, fallen kingdoms to support the practices of those fallen systems of coercion, force, threat, and punishment upon others on issues of conscience because they believe it's right to do so, because it will save lives. Have we seen that over the last few years? It's incredible to me. It's absolutely incredible how many churches coerce their own members their own employees and i don't mean just on a particular medicine about fellowship about ministry about meeting together Mm -hmm. so how do we protect ourselves from falling into this trap by having as ken said a change in worldview in understanding the kingdom of god and the core truth that determines our understanding of it all is our understanding god's law if we view god's law functioning like human law we are powerless after that if we believe that's the way it is we will always view god as the source of inflicted pain and suffering and death because if god's law does work like human law then justice does require infliction of punishment and that corrupts everything. We may have the right day of the week for worship, right method of baptism, but we have the wrong God and we have the wrong principles and we believe coercive force and inflicted punishment is just. And thus we become corrupted. One of the founders of the SDA church wrote in the opening of the book, The Great Controversy, the following quote, the great controversy is between Christ, the Prince of life, the author of our salvation, and Satan, the prince of evil, the author of sin, the first transgressor of God's holy law. Satan's enmity against Christ has been manifested against his followers. The same hatred of the principles, notice the principles of God's law, the same policy of deception by which error is made to appear as truth, by which human laws are substituted for the law of God, and men are led to worship the creature rather than the creator, may be traced in all the history of the past. Satan's effort to misrepresent the character of God to cause men to cherish a false conception of the creator and thus to regard him with fear and hate rather than with love, his endeavors to set aside the divine law, leading the people to think themselves free from its requirements, and his persecution of those who dare to resist his deceptions have been steadfastly pursued in all ages. They may be traced in the history of the patriarchs, prophets, and apostles of martyrs and reformers. Notice the issue. If you teach... That God's law functions like human law. System of rules that he makes up that require judicial oversight and enforcement. You are worshipping a creature. You are no longer worshipping the creator. And this is Romanism. This is what Rome did to Christianity, got the whole world to believe God's law functions like human law. And many of the reformers came along and they argued, well, he never changed this one or never changed that one. And so they go back and and replace the the law with the one that God gave in their mindset. This is what they think. And thus they think they have a more, but it's still an imposed law and God's still going to kill you and punish you if you don't keep it. Thus you're still worshiping a creature questions about that we are called at this time in history to give a message that calls people back to worship the creator he who built the heavens the earth the sea and all that in them is. Tuesday's lesson focuses upon the disciples waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit before they begin their mission and uh, <clears throat> waiting for mission the balance between waiting and acting have you ever had that struggle What's the balance between waiting and acting? And uh, I remembered as I was studying for this week the lyrics of a Christian song from a group called Petra. That this this song came out in 1982, 41 years ago, and the song is called "More Power to You." And I'm going to just read the lyrics. They'll should post up there for you to see. But here's the lyrics: You say that you've been feeling weaker, weaker by the day. You say that you can't make the joy of your salvation stay. But good things come to them that wait, not to those who hesitate, so hurry up and wait upon the Lord. More power to you when you're standing on his word, when you're trusting with your whole heart in the message you have heard. More power to you when we're all in one accord. They that wait upon the Lord, they shall renew, they shall renew their strength. Jesus promised his disciples he'd give strength to them. Jesus told them all to tarry in Jerusalem. When they were all in one accord, the power of the spirit poured and they began to turn the world around. So be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, put on all his armor and fight the good fight. In all our weakness, he becomes so strong when he gave us the power and the strength to carry on. So more power to you when you're standing on his word. When you're trusting with your whole heart and the message you have heard. More power to you when you're, we're all in one accord. They that wait upon the Lord, they shall renew. They shall renew their strength. So hurry up and wait upon the Lord. Don't you love that song? <laughs> Yeah, I love that song when I heard that many years ago because I I love the message, but I love the wordplay. The wordplay of hurry up and wait and then not just wait, but wait upon. So if you're waiting upon, you're actually active, you're not idle, right? So there's lots of subtle implications there. So if you've ever been to a restaurant and you have a waiter, the waiter waits by your table to take action for your needs. But they're actively waiting to act, to wait. (laughs) Mm. And so that's supposed to be kind of how we are on the Lord. We're waiting on him, and we're eagerly waiting to have direction, guidance, instruction, request, cooperate, and and we actively engage to wait upon the Lord. So I really like that song. It made me think of some of those uh, different angles and what it means to wait. So waiting is not simply idleness. Any thoughts about that?
2: There's a tremendous legend in that in the scripture because the, the Hebrew language particularly is rich in the various forms of poetry, and the various forms of word usage. So when we see something like that in a song, that is, that is a sort of a, uh, an integral part of loving God's word and, and being influenced by, by the Hebrew nation. Nice. So Wednesday's lesson, the the lesson points out,
0: points us to Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and Peter's sermon that followed that, and how Peter called them out, called the Jews out for crucifying Jesus. Acts 2:37 says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter answers them by saying, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord, our God, will call. First note that the promise is not just for those individuals back on the day of Pentecost, but for every person called by God throughout all human history. So that's a great promise for all of us. But what is the promise That we all have. What is the promise? If we repent and baptize, then what?
1: Then the Holy Spirit makes the changes in our hearts that need to, to be start. changed.
0: Well, it says repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for something. For, for the Holy Spirit? Does it say for the Holy Spirit?
1: No. It says that you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. No,
0: well, that's after something else, though.
1: After the remission of sins first.
0: Ah. It says, you will receive the the, Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, repent and be baptized, everyone in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. What does that mean? And somebody said the King James Version, because the King James Version, you can put that up on the screen, doesn't use the word forgiveness. It says, for the remission of sins. For the remission of sins. Do you hear forgiveness and remission the same? Hmm. So what does that mean? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission or forgiveness of sins. What is that? What does that mean?
1: Redemption. Redemption.
0: Well, if you look up the lexicons, and I think I have the lexicons there for them to post, um, the word translated remission or forgiveness, it's the same word translated either way into English, uh, translates as remission nine times, forgiveness six times, deliverance once, and liberty once. It means to release from bondage or imprisonment, forgiveness or pardon of sins, letting them go as if they had never committed, remission of the penalty the process of setting free or liberating release liberty he has set me and then it quotes another place where this word is used he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives liberty to the captives is the same word as forgiveness or remission of sins liberty same word liberty well then wait so be baptized in Jesus for the liberty from your sins, from the freedom from your sins, to be free from sin. That's not how it's often presented, is it? That's what it means, folks. That's what it means. So the Greek word translated forgiveness means to release, set free, provide liberty. The question is: from what? From what are we getting our liberty? And the, and, and, and the answer to that question depends totally on. The law lens that you believe and see through. If you have the human law model, then what are we getting liberty from through Jesus Christ?
2: The, penalty. the, penalty. the punishment.
0: The punishment, the penalty, God's wrath, God's anger. This is what we're being set free from. But if you have the design law model... Then you understand that sin does not happen in record books, that when Adam and Eve sinned, God did not get changed, God's law did not get changed, the condition of Adam and Eve changed, and we're born with a terminal condition, a condition of fear, self-centeredness that without remedy destroys all joy, wellness, happiness within us. It corrupts us, it corrodes us, and thus we worship the Lamb of God who takes away the Sin Sin of the world. And we want to be set free, not from external punishments and penalties. We want to be set free from sin, from the deviation from God's perfection, from the fear and self-centeredness in us that that plagues us. That's what we want to be set free from. And this is what it means, that you will have freedom from the domination and control of sin in your life. And so I will read you a quote out of the book, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 114. But forgiveness has a broader meaning than many suppose. When God gives the promise that he will abundantly pardon, and I'm going to pause because you will see this is quoting Isaiah 55. And in Isaiah 55 in the modern translations, the word abundantly is translated as freely mm-hmm. freely pardon you look all your modern translations. actually it means freely do you understand that penal legal sub, uh, substitution theology does not teach that
1: mm-hmm.
0: they actually teach something that actually makes no sense they teach that he pardons if he receives the payment of jesus blood Well, if you owed somebody $10,000 and you had, and this is one of Jesus' parables, the person who owned 10,000 talents and couldn't pay it back went to the king and the king forgave his debt, remember? If you owe somebody 10,000 talents, $10,000, and and you can't pay it, and the person goes to your brother and your brother pays the $10,000 so he has full compensation, then he turns to you and says, now that I've been paid, I'm going to forgive your debt. Does that actually work? That's what penal substitution says. Jesus presents his blood to the Father to pay our debt, and then the Father turns around and forgives you your debt. That's illogical. It's contradictory, and that's what you get every time you go down the human legal law model and try to explain these things. Uh, No, God will freely pardon. He pardons without being paid, because that's what love does. But freely pardon doesn't actually fix the brokenness within us. We still need something to restore us. But to know that we're freely pardoned takes, when we know that truth, it takes the fear that he's against us away so we can actually go to him so he can fix what's broken. But we have to know the truth that he's freely pardoning us. He doesn't have to be worked on. He doesn't have to be pled to by his son. He doesn't have to have someone uh, calm him down and give him anger management classes to take away his wrath. No, he doesn't need that. He's for us. God is for us. So when we know that truth, then he says he adds as if the meaning of that promise exceeded all that we could comprehend. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, because your ways are made up on rules that require punishment. I'm the creator, and I heal what's broken. My thoughts are not your ways, my ways your ways, says the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's forgiveness is not merely a judicial act by which he sets us free from condemnation, it is not only forgiveness for sin, but reclaiming from sin. Amen. It is the outflow of redeeming love that transforms the heart. David had the true conception of forgiveness when he prayed, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me." And again, he said, "As far as the east is from the west, he has removed my transgressions from us. He has removed our transgressions from us." Get your mind around that. David didn't pray, Father, don't punish me. Punish Jesus in my place. Supply his blood to my account. Erase the record of my sins and declare me to be righteous even though I remain wicked and horrible and unrighteous and sinful. He didn't pray that because that's all fraudulent paganism. And that's sadly what penal substitution theology teaches. The true gospel message is that through Jesus Christ, Forgiveness means the reclaiming from the sin condition and we get a new heart and right spirit that loves God and others and we no longer live controlled by, yes, we live tempted, we can be tempted, but we're no longer controlled by fear and selfishness.
1: But
0: Questions, anybody? The
1: next verse after that says, after create me a clean heart says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you.
0: Because you can't teach what you don't know. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, for all that you have done, for the truth of your character, for what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf that we could never accomplish. We ask for your spirit now to take the victory of Christ, reproduce it in us, write your law on, the, on our hearts and minds. Enable us to live free from the domination of fear and self-centeredness and to live out your love that others might see your character and be one to your kingdom we pray in your holy name amen